This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. China is facing a demographic crisis right now. It has a large aging population and one of the lowest birth rates in the world. This is in part due to China's own policies. Over three decades ago, the country mandated that married couples could only have one child. Back then, there were concerns about the population increasing too rapidly and that uh, that it could be a detriment to the company's economic growth. Three years ago, China eased the policy to allow couples to have two children. But for various reasons, couples aren't taking advantage of this change. So now the government is trying by other means to boost the population growth. We discussed this with Minwan Zhao, who is an associate professor of management here at the Wharton School, and Jacques Delisle, law professor and political science professor here at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as deputy director of Penn's Center for the Study of Contemporary China. They join me in studio. And also joining us on the phone is Marshall Meyer, who's an emeritus professor of management here at the Wharton School. Minwan, Jacques, Great to see you both. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Marshall, great to have you with us as well. Good morning. Good morning. So, Mimwan, take us into what we are seeing here right now, mm-hmm. because I think the the assumption would be if you change policy, the people of that country would take advantage of it. Apparently, that's not the case. Right. I think we'll get more into the details, but there are financial reasons, you know, how expensive it is to raise a child in the uh, in a city nowadays, and there are all kinds of social and legal issues involved. So you cannot just open up and expect people to have more children. Uh, women are going to face more discrimination in the job market. You know that it has been long been the case that uh, employers tend to like women when their children are in elementary school age, mm-hmm. and now you're going to have a second one. When I'm going to hire you? And, uh, of course, the housing market is a big issue. Chinese families tend to prepare their children's, you know, um, uh, home when they get married, and it just uh, doubled the burden or tripled the burden. So I think there are various reasons. Another thing I want to add is uh, even before the policy, the new policy kicked in, um, those who tend to have bigger families face less, less rich, restrictions. So, for example, ethnic minority um, is not facing the strict one-child policy. Those in rural areas, uh, you know, after five years, if the first is a girl, you can have a boy, and there's less scrutiny in those areas. So you tend to see families that tend to have big fam- uh well, areas that tend to have bigger families were less restricted before. So Mm. this just opened up. So the new policy applies mostly to urban areas, to um, the coastal areas where the one-child policy was very strictly implemented. And those are expensive places to raise children. Jacques? Yeah, no, that's right. And I think it's a very difficult problem to solve. As Minyan was saying, there are all sorts of economic uh, reasons for not having additional children. And some of it's also become habit. The, the people who are now yeah. of childbearing mm-hmm. age grew up as single children. Mm-hmm. They're not used to the idea that a family has multiple children. Mm-hmm. It's a generation that has been consuming a lot of what it earns in the cities. And they're now facing uh, the possibility of a double burden. So for a long time, we talked about China having a demographic dividend. That is, it didn't have too many old people because life expectancy was short until economic development got going. And then it wound up not having very many young people because after the late 1970s, there were these restrictions on births. So you had this big bulge of people who were in their prime working years. Right. Now what's happening, life expectancy is longer. So that big generation is, is getting older and living longer. 
And now we've got this small generation that's in the middle. If they start having lots of kids, they're suddenly going to be facing a double burden. And these are people who aren't used to really being focused on anyone other than their, themselves among the affluent classes in the cities. That's a real hard switch to make. So how do you encourage a change? It's really tough. We've seen experiments. We've seen offers of tax breaks and financial incentives, subsidizing housing, subsidizing education. These are at the provincial or sometimes more local level. Yeah. We've seen propaganda efforts. I'm sure we're going to talk about the three pig stamp <laughs> that came out for the new year. Yeah. I, you know, t- last, right. year last year was the, uh, the year of the monkeys. We had a monkey with two baby monkeys. Now we have a pig with three baby pigs, a, a sign perhaps <laughs> that we're going to a three child and, and, and more. Um, think, but, you know, and then we have uh, a little bit of propaganda kicking in. Uh, Remnant or Bob, People's Daily, put out this editorial saying it's a matter of national interest for you to have more children. And that's really given people the willies because this sounds like it's back to Stalin. It's back yeah. to Mao pre-79 right. when every mouth was two hands. You know, so China's had the swing from pro-natalist to anti-natalist. And the question is, is it going to go back? And everyone's trying to figure it out. The final thing I'd add is that there was a bit of a, an uptick in birth rate when they lifted the single-child family policy, but that hasn't really continued upward. And that's not surprising. What you probably had is people who really wanted a second kid who were waiting for the policy shift. And then that that demand got unleashed, and then it sort of has has petered out again. So you're talking about, going back to what you're saying with the the three pig, you're talking, to a degree, a subtle marketing campaign that the the Chinese government has put forward here. Right, and people will live with a subtle marketing campaign. The concern is, are we going to start getting pressure? I mean, this was a system, remember, which did coerce sterilizations and coerced abortions uh, to keep population down. You know, it's been more benevolent than that, but there are lots of signs of creeping authoritarianism of a severe kind again in China. People worry about where it may lead. Marshall? Um, <clears throat> lots of things going on. What I think of is the following. First, the age of marriage is going up in China. Uh, most Asian, developed Asian countries' age of marriage is now about 30. China's about 27 for men. Uh, uh, inevitably, that, inevitably, inexorably, that's, that's going to go up. Um, that's going to limit fertility. At the same time, the divorce rate's going up very markedly. So the combination of the two is going to work against a multiple-child policy. Uh, right from the get-go. And there's another factor here, and it's called the law of unintended consequences. Uh, I always think about uh, China's uh, population pyramid. Uh, It's not a pyramid today. Um, It looks uh, more like a pagoda with a big bulge at the top. And that bulge at the top increases your dependency ratio, which I think is the ratio of folks uh, under 15 over 64 to the working age population, 15 to 64. Now, what happens when you uh, uh, ask people to have more children? And hypothetically, they actually do. The dependency ratio actually goes up and throws a bit of a monkey wrench in economic development. Um, 15 years later, you might get your dividend from it. You will get your dividend. But in the meantime, um, it will actually slow your economic growth rates, which are already under strain. So I think it's a very, very complicated problem. I'm not sure they've thought this through thoroughly. And uh, we'll wait to see what happens. But meanwhile, I mean, we're talking about the potential of a significant economic issue coming up here because right. of the loss of workforce mm-hmm. in the next, right. I mean, now, but also over the next 20 to 30 years as well. Right. And uh, um, so there are a couple of things going on. This has been expected. It's just uh, many say the the policy is coming a little bit too late. China has been developing 
artificial intelligence, robotic technologies, you know, uh, industry upgrade, all these things very actively expecting mm. the decline in uh, in labor uh, labor supply. Um, uh, one thing I want to echo what uh, Shark and Marshall said was, uh, yes, for the short in the short run, the transition can be difficult because for thirty years you have one child policy. So as a result. You know the way you manage the household, right, is morphed into that style. The amount of resources, you know, financial resources, and the time poured into every child is tremendous because you have four grandparents, two parents, right? right? So uh, the kind of investment in their education, in their welfare, the attention paid to the child, and that's not going to change anytime soon. And it's like I, I heard a comment online saying, you know, now we raise the child as if you know this is our the, the only treasured being, and now you are saying we can just. To reduce the investment and somehow allow them to go to worse schools, attend yeah. less extracurriculum activities. You know, this is the kind of mindset that it would take a long time to change. I guess the the question then, Jock, is to a degree: is all are all of these elements that seemingly are coming together? At one time, it, it almost is is a version of a perfect storm. At you know, economically on, on the negative side for China, and I guess the question is. Could you forecast this? Could you forecast seeing this potential scenario playing out? Let's go back 10 years, 15 years, if you're the Chinese government. I'm sure. And there were people who were talking about it back then. Um, but, you know, but the problem is these these kinds of systems are prone to or- oversteer. Right. right? Yeah. So there was this pro-natalist, we need more people, a country's strength is its population. Again, this Maoist dictum of every mouth comes with two hands. Mm-hmm. You know, and that created this real push for for growth, and that became a problem, growth in the population. And so they steered sharply back in the other direction. Right. And it's hard to sort of hit that sweet spot in the middle. And now they're discovering if you turn the wheel back to the right, yeah. uh, you know, the car is not responding so fast. The momentum issue is, is, is key here, and I think it really needs to be underscored. Because we have a very small generation now in its childbearing years, even if they go up to 2.1 replacement rate or higher, they're now at about 1.6 per woman, uh, it takes a long time for that to build up a population because yep. it's a larger percentage of a tiny group. So that's going to take some time. And then you've got other uh, other factors that compound it. Marshall was talking about the age of marriage being uh, an issue. Divorce rates, he said, uh, also are high. But the other thing is you have a, a generation now where there are too many men for the women. It's 114 to 100 uh, sex ratio. And that means that you, you, you're, you're even worse off uh, than that looks. So this is just you know, really, really tough. So of course it could be seen. And what Minyan was referring to is one of the ways that they foresaw it. That is, it's in China's interest in general to switch to a more brain-intensive, less brawn intensive economy. Sure. That's what you do as you develop. Every country's been through that. China needs to do it more because you've got to have people work beyond 60. Uh, you know, you've yeah. got to have jobs that people can handle. And that's what they've been working on. But China's facing the problem of becoming gray before it becomes rich. Europe and Japan have the same problem, but they're more developed. And, and you bring up an interesting point, Miyuan, is the fact that the retirement age mm-hmm. is something that does need to be addressed. When right. you have a retirement age that is 60 and 55, and we obviously see it here in the United States, especially in the wake of the recession, where we have more people working into their 70s now, for people to, to have a retirement at age 60, that, 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 is a, that is a loss of productivity. So interestingly, there are many misunderstandings about retirement okay. in China. Uh, first of all, the official retirement age is very early, right? So for many companies, especially state-owned companies, women retire at like 55, some at yeah. 50. Yeah. So depending on the kind of 
um, so-called than where you work for. Uh, women can legally retire at 50 and at many of the places. And then they got all these odd jobs here and there. And the most important odd job is child, uh, not childbearing, but to take care of their grandchildren. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that does not count into GDP. That's some, But they work very hard to take care of the third generation. And so it's very hard to say what's the you know, technical, we know what the legal retirement age is, but in China, the technical retire age can be much later already, right. even before they make any adjustment. Marshall, what do they need to do with, with retirement, you think? Um, uh, less of it, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, we look at the universities in the United States. Um, uh, 65 retirement age went by the wayside a long time ago. Uh, in China, uh, very, very few people stay past 65, some places 60. Mm-hmm. You're losing a lot of brain power there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you need a larger labor force in China, no question about it. And as already mentioned, the only way you're going to get that quickly is by giving people uh, very strong incentives to stay at work. Right now, those incentives don't exist. And f- from what I understand, they're, they're at least right now, meanwhile, is in terms of the, the, the ratio of men to women mm-hmm. in China, there's much more, a much higher number of men than there are women right now. So if you're talking about, to a degree, increasing the number of babies that are going to be you know, brought in, into the country in the years to come, right. you're talking about, a, it sounds like, if those numbers are correct, a significant for female babies coming in, into the country to moving forward. Right. The situation is actually worse than what you see in the, in the numbers because the ma- mismatch happened on both sides. So, right. yes, in aggregate, you're talking about 114 uh, to 100, but in the rural areas where the the f- male heir is yeah. more treasured, yeah. you have a much more skewed number. So a lot of men cannot find a wife. But in the cities where, you know, raising a, a male heir is considered more expensive, you need to prepare the house for them and so on. Um, there's basically no discrimination. So if when you go to Shanghai, when you go to the biggest urban areas, there's no discrimination. And instead, women have a headway into the white collar jobs. They either just better into uh, those urban environments. So you actually see, at least from a lot of the anecdotal stories I heard, um, in the professional, uh, uh, at the professional level, women are outnumbering uh, men, yeah. especially in those migrant professional areas. So there's a lot of mismatch in the market leading to later in a marriage age and uh, even smaller marriage rate. Yeah, what you have is that phenomenon. Women do very well in college in China. They're a mm-hmm. big chunk of a lot of the degrees that feed into urban office type jobs. Right. And women in China, as in many places, uh, are relatively reluctant to marry down in terms of socioeconomic status. So yeah. it, it, you add to that the phenomenon that Minyan was talking about earlier, which is women uh, face discrimination in the in the workplace. Mm-hmm. You, are you going to have kids? Are you going to have multiple kids? So we see a lot of women who are professionally and economically ambitious delaying marriage or avoiding marriage mm-hmm. because they can't find what they consider a suitable mate and they don't want to take the hit to their careers right. that comes with, oh, you're married, you're going to have a kid now. Mm-hmm. So you do have, uh, have something that compounds the basic demographic imbalance. Right. Mar- Marshall, the, the impact that the government seemingly wants to have uh, in this entire process, uh, obviously, Jacques mentioned before, it's almost like they have a plan that that they believe will work to, to, I guess, to a degree, control this entire process, whether it be through financial support, uh, education, whatever. And, and seemingly that that is going to scare a lot of people in that country. Oh, I, I, I would think so a little bit. Um, 
uh, you know, I think of Singapore. Singapore has tried to not only maintain a um, uh, population level, but a population balance between three ethnicities. And they've engaged sometimes in heavy-handed, sometimes in softer-touch programs to encourage particularly the Chinese in Singapore to have more kids. Um, and on balance, uh, I guess it's worked, uh, but a lot of people uh, even there have been chary of efforts to intervene in their personal lives. So I can't predict how it's going to play out in China at all. One of the interesting things in China is that aside from the return of high graves of people who've been trained abroad, um, there's not a lot of immigration into China. Other countries like the U.S. Uh, sometimes solve the small family low birth rate problem through immigration. Uh, young people come into the country, fill up the labor force, and your dependency ratios uh, don't skyrocket. I don't know whether China will ever be attractive to non-Chinese. I, I don't know whether uh, they can use other means to draw overseas Chinese back home, but that would be another approach to this problem. Myanmar? Well, I think I see more jokes uh, about the, the new propaganda than the scare. You know, um, one thing that was not mentioned before is in my parents' generation, it's the hero moms, right? The hero moms will give birth to like nine children, even 11 children, just to increase the population. And then you have this ridiculous you know, propaganda about the one-child policy to the point of being cruel and painted on the walls and the buildings. So when the new policy, new propaganda wave came up, it, most people find it amusing, um, and there's sense it's not alarming as you would think because you kind of get used to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. It's, it's, yeah clearly, uh, people don't quake at the uh, propaganda yeah. uh, stuff coming out the way they did mm -hmm. two and three generations ago. I mean, that's that's been a profound transformation, and for all of the. You know, many nasty things going on under the Xi Jinping regime, the sort of return of a harder-edged authoritarianism, it's nowhere near back to anything like what we saw a generation ago. Mm -hmm. So people just sort of shrug it off and mock it in cyberspace. But that said, there are little things that, that can be done, and we're starting to see some of them already. We're starting to see uh, foot dragging on granting divorce in the hopes that the, co the, the couple will stay together and maybe have kids. <laughs> yeah. Questionable policy, but you know, you could, that's yeah. the motivation. Yeah. And you're starting to see a few more hassles thrown up in terms of getting abortion. China has you know, long had extremely free access to abortion. Indeed, pro-choice in China meant being free not to have an abortion rather than to have one until very recently. Um, and, and you see these kinds of little tweaks around the edges, not terrifying people, but it is this, I think it's something that may come back to bite them because just another sort of thing where people feel that they're chafing against a regime that's starting to be more intrusive again. Marshall, uh, obviously this comes at a time, a uh, very important time for China as it is considering itself to be a, you know one of the leaders economically around the globe right now. And, and obviously the, the growth rates are watched very closely in terms of what China is doing right now, it does beg the question of what potentially could happen to this growth of China, of this global power over the next couple of decades. Uh, absolutely, because um, uh, even though China's trying to move away from the most labor-intensive industries, uh, its growth ultimately will, will depend a bit on people power. But here's the real concern. Um, let's look at what's in the headlines today. What's in the headlines today is China's effort to balance a massive debt overhang and also 
uh, massive overinvestment in many industries. You know, take steel, for example. Um, uh, how are they going to manage that? And you can see the start, 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 stop policy, the economic policies right now. Mm-hmm. We're going to try to cool the economy. No, 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 no. We've got to promote growth. Combine this overhang of debt and um, excess capital formation uh, with a shrinking workforce, and you've got a problem. Who's going to take care of that debt? Who's going to make sure that China is able to make the right investments and move ahead? And I've always thought, this goes back five, six years, that these lines would collide with one another at some point. And I've always worried, by the way, that very aggressive U.S. policy toward China uh, in some sense isn't necessary because the internal dynamics, demography on the one side, the economic uh, dynamics on the other side, will themselves converge to cause a real slowdown in China at some point, which may not be far ahead. Yeah, so far we talked about the supply side a lot, and I think the demand side is equally important, right? Who's the buyers for all the consumer goods? Who are the buyers of the housing units? You know, this is going to be a huge risk when the four grandparents um, died, and who's going to inherit the the three apartments, you know, yeah. you, you spend so much uh, money on? So, yes, you know, in the past two decades, I would say, Having a housing unit for your grandson so that he can get married on time is uh, is paramount. You know, you you suck the savings from three generations to get the apartments ready, but very soon, if the population does not increase and if the birth rate does not increase, this one grandson is going to inherit three apartments. And yeah. so, because housing is such an important part of the economy, because Marshall mentioned the debt issues, so much of the debt issues are, is around the, the housing market, uh, this will be a time bomb if nothing changes. I mean, urbanization will offset some of that as more people move to right. cities, but China's already more than 50% urban, so there's a limit right. to how much more uptake mm-hmm. there will be. And, and and as Minyan was implying, a lot of what's gone on in the housing market is the expectation of ever-rising prices. So even if the curve just flattens, that, that yeah. starts to upset people's but, expectations. But just one other thing on, yeah. on the, on the, the, the um, demand side, mm-hmm. which is as you get an older population, there's a huge demand for services that are very hard to automate, right? Elder sure. care, medical mm-hmm. care, things yeah. like that. So there's going to be this immense demand for, as in the U.S., uh, for people who provide that kind of care to the retired. And where are the people who do those jobs going to come from? But, I mean, hasn't there been a push in the last several years not only with the growth of the of the major cities in China, but also trying to expand that growth into more of the rural areas. Right. And if you're taking, you know, if you're have if your expectation is that you're going to see higher numbers of people coming to cities, then you're also taking away from from the potential growth that you would see in the rural areas as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's going on, but uh, clearly it's the old Arthur Lewis model, right? They sort of gain um, uh, GDP when people move from sort of low-productivity agricultural sectors into the city and so on. Um, And China's headed down that path. It's not a terribly competitive place agriculturally in terms of output. So you're going to see mechanization and all of that. Um, But one of the real uh, tensions, we're talking about sort of forecasting the effects of policy. One of the other set of unintended consequences that, that Marshall alluded to is what happens when you do this big push for urbanization? It has a lot of unforeseen 
unforeseen consequences. Mm-hmm. Do you have people continue to pour into the major growth poles, or do you have second and third tier cities and have them build up? Those mm-hmm. are very different models. They have very different consequences. Uh, and there's been some flitting back and forth on how to do that. So once again, you get these things that play out and they have real momentum to them. It's hard to reverse and adjust on a dime. Marshall? And to go back for a second on Jacques' point, um, the urbanization is built on debt. Who's going to pay that debt? Right. Great question. Yeah. I mean, it's it's going to be sitting out there. Mean one. Right. Uh, one uh, small thing to add, you know, Jacques mentioned the senior care. This is going to be an important issue. We already see a lot of investment into senior houses that China have never seen before because it's always in in the past it's always the family members who take care of the the senior member of the family and uh, uh, I think there has been experiments to introduce say nannies or or maids from the Philippines and for uh, from foreign countries so in some major cities um, there's no large scale you know policies coming out but experiments are being conducted to to check the possibilities foreseeing the lack of supply. But how much impact could those could those really realistically have on what what could be a very large gap here right. in the next several years? And it also depends on the overall social and the legal development because so far China's a very low trust society. You know, yeah. people worry about having a stranger coming to the house and um, you know how to track them down if if anything happens, how to monitor their activities. So you know, partly all these. Um, what do they call it? Social ID uh, numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there has been a lot of effort to to build up this trust system. I don't know how far it can go because yeah. they're going against the, social, that social direction. Credit social credit system. Yeah. Um, thank you, Marshall. Uh, to to make it feasible, to make those kind of private labor market feasible. So far, it's very hard. Great having you all with us today. Meanwhile, Jacques, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Marshall. Great having you on the phone. Thank you, sir. Mar- bye-bye. Marshall Meyer and uh, Meanwhile, Zhao from here at the Warden School, Jacques Delisle from uh, Penn Law, joining us here in studio. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.